Good evening and welcome to Editing Aloud. I have with me, as always, a panel of some of South Africa's best journalists, joined this evening by Bernard Swanepoel, who is the head of the Small Business Institute, but in an earlier life was head of the gold mining company Harmony. So it's as both a miner and an advocate for small business that we know him. And we want to talk to him this evening in both those capacities, not just about his own turf, but also about the economy more generally and about what's happening to us in level four. And Bernard, could I start with you? Um, on one version, the people in the economy who are going to be hit absolutely the hardest are small and medium enterprises. What are you seeing in the market so far? And, and how do you see this playing out? Yeah, Hillary, it's a bloodbath. And I think we all are living it and we all are seeing that. So the local shops that we've dealt with are closed down. The restaurants are attempting to open up for takeaways, but you can't carry the overhead and the rent on a few pizzas a night. So it's tough. I mean, the local uh, service providers are not allowed to open. And on a risk-adjusted uh, basis, you would have assumed that small businesses should open first, not last. So there's the illogical application of the regulations that have really completely destroyed the small business uh, sector. Our own members are caught between the larger suppliers, haven't paid the invoices. If only they got paid, they would survive a month or two months longer. Um, but obviously, in the end, we need to generate new revenue. And for that, we need the economy uh, to reopen uh, and for activity to start. But it's really tough out there. And the um, assistance for small businesses is, is cumbersome. It's caught up in red tape. It's caught up in political agendas. And so most small businesses are not really seeing light end of this tunnel. Bernard, in which sectors of the sort of small business sector, as it were, which are the hardest hit by the way in which the regulations are being implemented? So I suppose, um, if you look at self-employed people, the gig economy, the guy with a car who was the driver, I mean, most of those have just come to an absolute halt. Tourism, uh, such a great sector for smaller businesses because of the bed and breakfast type sort of uh, businesses completely de destroyed. I mean, there's just no activity, no legal activity taking place. Um, you know, we see how spaza shops and informal traders are allowed to um, be part of this sort of supply chain. But these are not businesses that have created jobs. So it is the very small businesses, the sort of ones that have survived for two, three, four years, the ones who employ no more people. Those are the businesses that are shut down right now and are completely not able to uh, generate any revenue. So sector specific, I would say tourism is at the sort of bleeding uh, edge of it. Um, but then our industrial policy of the last uh, 20 odd years have really made uh, small business other sectors uh, quite a, um, a vulnerable sort of category of businesses. Rob Rose, I wanted to bring you in here. What, how do you see this playing out? What, what would you want to ask Bernard in his wearing his small business hat? Um, sorry about that. The thing that I particularly find um, an interesting point that you mentioned, and I think that this is what a lot of small businesses I've spoken to say, is that the regulations and the, and the supposed um, aid measures that are in place to help remedy the situation aren't really getting to the people who need it, need it now. 
there's so much bureaucracy you have to provide for some of these packages, three months of bank statements. Um, so I just my impression was that was that the process is just companies are going to die because of the processes. I mean, and I suppose Bernard, is that I mean, is that how you feel? Is that your impression from the businesses you speak to, and how could they fix that? Uh, yeah, no, certainly. Um, you know, we're a country that suffers from uh, lots of red tape, and you would have thought in a crisis we would actually suspend some of the red tape and make things easier. But that's not our approach. I mean, it's not the approach of the country, even when it comes to food parcels to people. So in all of small uh, business development, um, on, on our website, the 500 odd people who have uh, complied our sort of uh, um, survey, uh, most of them says we haven't even re got a response. I think only five people got a response from the Department of Small Business. So you need to register. You need to fabricate or or create documents which you wouldn't have had in the past. I mean, so now it's not the time for data collection. The Department of Small Business had four or five years to establish databases. We've tried to co collaborate with them to do some research but we got caught with our pants down we are not in a position to now achieve things that wasn't achievable before before the crisis and so quite frankly 500 million rands is a huge amount of money and you spread it over a 600 or a, a 600,000 or a million small businesses what are we saying 500,000 uh, 500 per small business is going to save the small business sector clearly this, this is too little and too late and, and unfortunately, I think as a country, we've had a far smaller percentage of our economic activity in this sector. We've got a missing small business sector, and it's going to be worse post the, uh, um, post the crisis or the pandemic. Bernard, what, could you just outline for us what measures are in place? Because you've talked about the 500 million rand which the small business department is providing, but there's also quite formidable private sector funding that supposedly is going into that, not only the Oppenheimer Fund, uh, the Futures Trust, but also, um, I don't, from the banks, uh, what is on stream and what is available at the moment and is it making any difference? Yeah, um, so the, the banks are, are supposedly going to make available huge amounts of money um, and obviously it is debt. Now, if you were a small business owner, that do not know when you can restart your business, is debt, debt relief as helpful as it is, is that the right tool? I don't think so. I don't think you can now responsibly go and take out debt to pay salaries of a business that may not be viable post this sort of event. So again, not critical. Those are useful tools, but they are not going to solve the problem right at the bottom of the pyramid um, because debt relief, what it is, it's debt relief. You know, now you need to take more debt. I, I really can't um, uh, uh, recommend that to many, uh, to many small businesses. Um, the two uh, billion rand donations of the two families went a long way. But I think especially the one that was, um, uh, came from the Rupert was oversubscribed and the money was uh, distributed very quickly. Of quite a few people who got quantums of 25,000 rand and so on. But in a small business with five people, 25,000 rand is probably a wage bill for one month. So, again, there is no solution coming from external donations and or um, uh, debt forgiveness and or delay of payments. It surely has to be to allow small businesses to start earning uh, money. And where they earn money, the larger 
um, companies and the government should pay those invoices, as we've been arguing for the last few years. About a third of our current members that are contemplating shutting down their business say, if only their invoices got paid, work they've done pre-dependent, if only their invoices were paid, they will either sustain themselves longer or probably survive through the pandemic. So this is people who are owed money by the larger, you know, the larger businesses and government. Lucanio, you've been looking at it from a macroeconomic point of view. So in theory, a government has just put a huge stimulus package together, which includes uh, various components which should assist small business. Um, if Bernard is correct, then are we wasting our money? I mean, like, as Bernard said, like, you know, we are a country like, full of bureaucracy and we love our bureaucracy and all these things get stuck up in politics and court cases. I mean, I think that I mean, an example is, is, is that thing about with, um, with the tourism minister. I mean, okay, she's, she's won a court case, but it's really a period victory because her victory has been at the expense of people out there not getting assistance. And we're like, what, six weeks now into, into this lockdown. And, and that's all she can really show for. <laughs> and I mean, is it really like a time for us to be nitpicking about, I don't know how many regulations there were, how many points that was. And because on a technicality you win on that and you think, okay, that's great. But the, but the, the, the point here is not to win, you know, like little arguments about nitpicking about, about regulations. It should really be about getting people assistance and getting people fed and getting people at work. You know? It is depressing in, 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 other, in, in that aspect. I mean, you, you can come up with all the processes you want and, and, and how many policies you want. Like Bernard said, and like the, the, the whole issue with debt relief, I mean, that's great, but would you really recommend anybody who doesn't know whether they're going to be in business in a few weeks' time to take more debt? And, and as a bank, would, you be, would it be responsible for you to extend that debt, even if though you, you, may, you might be safe in the sense that you've got a, you've got a government guarantee? But can you morally justify it to yourself, that like as a banker, like to, 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 to sort of hand out money that you know is not coming back, that the taxpayer eventually then would have to put the bill for? Bernard, is all this money going up in smoke, the stimulus money? How can you be critical of money that people one more, uh, one more month's worth of salary? So no. I mean, I just argue it's not enough to see us through to where the demand side of the economy can start functioning again. We need to create demand. We need to get people to shop. We need to get people to buy. Um, and there's no, there's no shortcut. I mean, you know, so we can't keep businesses if there's never going to be demand again. I mean, we'll run out of money. So I'm, I'm not critical of what has been done. I'm arguing that I don't know how a business employing five people can be kept close when other larger businesses are allowed to operate. It, this goes to the structure of our economy. This goes to the ability of certain sectors of the economy to risk. I mean, there is significant higher risk bringing a thousand people together in a manufacturing plant making motor cars than what there is in a mom and pop shop on the corner. But we, we don't approach it like that. I mean, this is not how our economy functions. So, I honestly have to argue that we should set up this free fundamentally in terms of overregulation. But right now, we should allow our people to responsibly start to generate revenue again. Then the uh, support. You know, you don't put somebody on life support as a patient with no intention of ever coming out of it. So life support is meant to be there. But here we put, uh, we throw good money off the bat unless we also open up the demand side of our economy pretty soon. We've got one minute to go to the break, but I'm going to slip in another topic quickly. Just tell us, 
if we look into the kind of reforms and the deregulation that, that, that we're talking about on the panel, is the release of the broadband spectrum, is it any positive sign that we might be heading in the deregulation direction? I'm not an expert, so I'm going to look at the experts for that. Um, but clearly, uh, broadly, deregulation is a good thing, but I'm simply not an expert in this area. I'm going to turn to Mudiwe Gavaza now. Um, Mudiwe, tell us about the release of the spectrum, which has happened in the past couple of weeks all of a sudden. Um, is this the beginning of a reform push? Um, I, I think it, it's a very good move and, you know, just echoing some of the sentiments in the discussion so far just around uh, the bureaucracy, the red tape, the amount of time that it takes to do certain things because South Africa hadn't had a big um, allocation of spectrum since maybe about 2004, really, where they opened up, uh, you know, the airwaves the way that they have right now. So the fact that Minister Ndaveni Abrams was able to say something, um, and then about three weeks later, ICASA was able to issue that spectrum, shows that, you know, somewhere in there, if you allow the cogs to actually work, then it can actually happen. Though it won't be perfect because Telcom has come out and said that you guys have given out some spectrum that we own. So the actual process itself is not perfect, but when these guys want to make things happen, they can actually... Um, they can actually, you know, turn those wheels and actually turn things around very quickly. Yeah. It takes a crisis. But the question, I suppose, is, is this crisis, uh, Rob Rose, going to be the sort of unlock of reform and economic dynamism that we might have hoped for? I mean, I think it can go either way. It should be that. Um, but there's a lot of scepticism, I think, justifiably, given how we've performed over the last couple of years. Um, even since President Cyril Ramposa took over, I think that the reforms didn't happen like people wanted. Um, so there is justifiable skepticism over whether we can do the right things for once. Um, you know, people have been saying for months already that this was our last chance, our last chance. And I think, you know, we're at the position where it really, um, you know, we really have our backs against the wall. And now we're, we're raising a whole lot of money to finance this. And we're going to see a massive GDP drop. I think business, uh, business for SA that, that, Group estimated something something huge. I mean, up to seventeen percent. Minus ten, minus ten percent to minus seventeen percent GDP. Yeah, mm. and the and treasury forecast is treasury research is much the same. Rob, mm. yeah, and, and you saw that presentation given to Parliament last week by the treasury, and it, it is very dire. And I suppose it depends to what extent when the lockdown lifts, but that's only part of the problem. The other issue is getting the demand back, getting people out. Um, and I spoke to Toko Sun's CEO, myself and Olok yesterday, and he was saying that you can lift the lockdown tomorrow, but until people start spending, it doesn't help a lot of companies. So I think it's about getting that economy actually going, and that's, that's going to take far longer than just lifting a lockdown. What does that mean for us, Lucanio? I mean, are these, are these very, very dire forecasts of economic activity? Um, are they justified? How bad are the worst case scenarios going to materialize? Well, I mean, all I can say, Hillary, I, I would, I, I mean, with my best heart, I would have hoped that, uh, I wish that Mr. Patel does know more than everybody else, that it is really a thumb suck and that, that all his numbers are like are completely all rubbish. I mean, <laughs> but somehow I don't think he's right, you know. So, I mean, so I started my week very much like in gloom after reading your, like, your reporting over the weekend. So, and, and it only got worse. So, <laughs> like, 
And I, I mean, yesterday we had missed the um, kids better and on, on just on the, on the finances. I mean, talking about the, the, the shortfall, potential shortfall in, uh, in tax collection, 285 billion. I mean, if you think our whole deficit was supposed to be 376, that was our deficit we were supposed to have. And like, if things went well, <laughs> then it was only 6.8% or whatever. And now we're looking at 14%, 15%, 17%, who knows? So can you just imagine the amount of money that you, that we have to raise? And I mean, is it possible really for the bond market to even support that kind of demand for, for money, i.e., whether there's some there's demand there for our paper? Now that as we know where the yields are at the moment, they're like above ten percent already. I mean, it does look. I wish there was something positive to say, and I did. I do wish that. Um, Mr. Patel is actually right, and we are all wrong. In that case, then you know, like things might not be as gloomy as we all think. I have to say, it would be surprising since they've they've been kind of rather large teams of economists doing very very extensive modelling. Um, unless Mr. Patel has his own set of modellers, it would be surprising if he were right and they were all wrong. But Bernard, can I come back to you? Um, You've talked about that we just absolutely need to reopen the economy, but, but the, the risk obviously is we reopen too fast or we reopen not safely enough and the virus spikes and transmission goes crazy. Um, can I ask you, the mining industry is one of the industries which started reopening quite, re quite early with sort of safety protocols in place. I mean, is it possible to find that balance between safety and economic activity? And is mining any guide to that? Bernard? Is, uh, yeah, sorry, uh, um, I was just waiting to see if you put that to me. Um, obviously, uh, I think it's probably one of the um, uh, concentrated uh, parts of our economy which is best suited uh, to experiment. And I think we should treat this as a responsible experiment. I think allowing up to 50% of activity uh, means that you probably need 60 or 70% of the people. Typically, you talk about thousands of people working on underground mines. Um, the infrastructure could not be better suited for this experiment. Mines are extremely good at crowd control, at people control. Does, is that then... A very, very good and responsible approach. I do fear that the first incident will result in us panicking and, and shutting down mines, and that will actually undo the benefits of experimenting. So I think as a controlled experiment, it's... Almost all of our, of our mills are getting exported, and this will start to, uh, you know, on the one hand, suck smaller businesses back into operation to supply to the mines, and on the other hand, hopefully earn foreign exchange for our country. So I think the mines was a good choice of a, of a new part of the economy to open up. Is it any guide, though, Bernard, to, to how others might be safely reopened? You know... Um, I will unashamedly say that there is no health or safety reason to keep a self-employed person from working. Where is the risk? I think if you talk up to 20 people, it is absolutely simple to get people to do social distancing to work. So I am arguing that small should have opened first. But that's not how our country work. Big business, big, uh, big government talk, you know, um, in places where most of us are excluded. And then you pick a sector like mining, and I think that was a good choice. 
I do believe that the motor sector think they are capable and ready to handle this type of thing. Um, but then agriculture has been open all along. And I mean, you know, there are some, some, some other sectors of the sort of economy that uh, is ready. Quite honestly, if we're going to live this uh, pandemic for 18 months or two years, we need to find ways to live with it. We can't hide from it. And up to now, perhaps we've been hiding from it. We haven't been living with it. Now, nobody wants to die because of it, of course. So that is the dilemma. Mudiwe, would, 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 you, would you go along with that? And in the kind of sectors that you cover, is there scope for much greater economic activity to take place safely? Um, I think, you know, just extending on what uh, Bernard said, there's also um, a bit of a balance that needs to be struck because when you look at the trends in other parts of the world, one of the things that... Uh, reopening economies are sort of accelerated is um, you need less people but you need manufacturing to continue and what other countries have started doing is you have manufacturing sectors instituting more machinery you know you reduce the number of people in the uh, that are on a shop floor for example and then um, you then continue with them um, still being able to manufacture the goods that are needed especially um, some of the essential goods that are there um, looking at technology companies, just talking to um, the CEOs of uh, the different um, companies right now, they seem to be okay because um, they can do most of their work online. They can upgrade certain systems, you know, remotely. The real issue just comes when you are, let's say, a fiber company or one of the big telcos and you need um, to be building a new base station. You know, how do you how do you keep building along the sides of the roads without being bothered by the military and the police? Um, how do you make sure that, um, especially if you're subcontracting, this is a big uh, this is a big issue that I've heard from a couple of a uh, couple of the CEOs that they have subcontractors who do some of their work. You know, you have your own internal safety and health standards, but how do you make sure that? Um, your contractors and whoever they get to do the work on your behalf also adheres to the same standards that um, you you have as an organization. Whether it's the same masks, sanitizers, you know, stuff like that. And unlike a mine, like one Bernard is talking about, these are not sort of closed or controlled environments. Yeah. Rob, I find myself kind of puzzled by what seems to be open and what isn't. I mean, I went to a shopping mall the other day and there was everyone trading, um, you know, selling, selling uh, leotards as winter clothing. Um, what, what sort of risks are we taking here? And what is, if you compare and contrast the way we seem to be opening up, which seems in, in many ways very irrational with how we should be opening up. I mean, what would you want to see, Rob? I mean, Henry, I think it's pretty simple. Firstly, we need to make sure all the leotards can be cooked as chicken and then sold. I think that would help a lot. But um, actually, the rules should be that whatever can open safely opens. Um, I think we need to open up as much of our economy as possible, um, provided you can do it safely, and just put in place proper safety measures. I mean, Bernard was completely correct when he said that we can't, you know, if this is going to linger for another year, you have to find a way to live with it. So the principle guiding Ibram Patel and... Zuma should be let's let's open whatever we can um, whatever's possible to do we should do it and that's the one overriding principle this this hyper complicated graphs and graphics with you know you can open if you this but you don't sell hot chicken and as long as you sell leotards it's 
we need to simplify it. Bernard, I'm going to give you the last word at the risk of, of not giving Lucania a chance. Uh, Bernard, so how would you open up um, in a way that somehow contains the virus to the levels we can sort of manage? I do think we actually uh, have got the right overall approach of some risk-based uh, assessed sort of approach. Don't think we've got the institutional capacity to do this. And then it comes down to lobbying, either lobbying by a minister who doesn't like smoking, if rumors are true, or lobbying by a, a banking association who lob, you know, can lobby better, say, than the small business or informal business sort of sector. And that's where it goes wrong. And that's the structure of our economy. So proper risk is Mr. Owner of the business, Mr. CEO or Mrs. CEO, you've got a responsibility and within the law, you've got a right to open, but be, uh, you know, be responsible. But we assume that South Africans aren't responsible. Then we treat them like they're not responsible. And then we let the police lose on them to prove that they're not responsible. That's the fundamental problem, our approach. So the theory is perfect. And the devil is in the bad implementation because we aren't great implementators as uh, South Africans. Thank you very much to all of you. Um, that's all we have time for. Uh, please join us again next week for another edition of Editing Aloud.